Welcome back to LGB Time Machine. This is Theo, and this week we're going to talk about the various LGBTQ plus organizations of the early 1970s. Before we jump in, I wanted to say thank you to the Orange Groves Podcast Network for taking us on and including us in the amazing group of podcasts that they host. Orange Groves is donation-supported, and its goal is to host and support smaller creators, lift up marginalized voices, and foster community. And I am so, so thankful to them for all that they've done for LGB Time Machine so far. I highly recommend everyone check out the numerous amazing other podcasts that Orange Grove hosts. And if you want to support those podcasts in mine, maybe think about supporting their Patreon. So, last episode, I covered a lot of riots and protests leading up to and including Stonewall. Now here we are post-Stonewall. Post-Stonewall, there was a change in perspective and a changing of the guard of sorts. One of the most demonstrative events to talk about in this regard is July 4th, 1969. One week after the start of the Stonewall riots, there was the annual Reminder Day demonstration. This demonstration had been happening every year since 1965, and normally entailed about 40 lesbians and gay men marching in single file outside of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The event was sponsored by the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations. This was normally a peaceful, somber, quite strict event. There was a dress code of nice clothing, and the norm was for people to march single file with no talking or chanting or anything. In 1969, however, things changed. I mean, of course they changed, or else why would we be talking about it, right? So that year, the 40 individuals were joined by about 35 younger demonstrators from New York. They had seen ads in the Village Voice and that were posted on the streets of Greenwich Village, all of which were paid for by Craig Rodwell. So these youngsters were dressed in jeans and t-shirts, some were wearing sandals, and while they remained silent and in single file at first, it really didn't last. About a half hour into the march, two lesbians broke out of single file, and worse, they held hands. So when they were rebuked by Frank Kameni, who is known for fathering the phrase gay is good and for his leadership throughout the homophile movement, he slapped their hands apart and told them, you can't do that, and then things got a bit hectic. One 19-year-old took a black marker and crossed out the Equality for Homosexuals message on his sign and replaced it with Smash Sexual Fascism. Craig Wadrell, furious at Kameni's reaction, took the young protesters aside. Then he had them march in couples, all holding hands. With the excitement surrounding Stonewall, young members of the LGBTQ community weren't interested in going back to the old ways. They weren't interested in quiet protests that inched them along. They wanted to go big and they wanted to change the world. And how they attempted to do that is what I'll be exploring in today's episode. So first off, let's chat about the Gay Liberation Front. The Gay Liberation Front, also known as the GLF, was technically formed in part because of the Mattachine Society. This is a bit of a convoluted explanation, so bear with me. The executive director of the Mattachine Society, Dick Leitch, recognized that Stonewall had changed things. He was known for coining the phrase, the hairpin drop heard around the world, in reference to it, which I believe he said the day after the first riot, but I could be wrong. He was a pretty radical-leaning man, and again, he recognized that times were changing, but he was also in his mid-30s at the time of Stonewall and dressed, as all middle class of his generation did, in suits and ties. 
To the young gays, he was old, and even Craig Rodwell, who'd sat beside him in the 1966 sip-in at Julius's, accused Leitz of being less interested in supporting militant tactics to empower gay people than in becoming a mere politician. However, one gay man saw potential in Leitz and in the Mattachine Society, and so he offered to help the Mattachine build on the energy of Stonewall and bring in younger members. This led to the formation of the Mattachine Action Committee, which met at Freedom House, where all Mattachine meetings were held. The Mattachine Action Committee meetings attract people like Martha Shelley, Lois Hart, Timothy Leary, Mayor Baba, and Robert Ma- Martin, known as his pseudonym Stephen Donaldson. More than one of these individuals had a dislike for Leitch, and so that dislike was built into the MAC, and then was absorbed by all the other young radicals who were joining. Leitch either didn't know about this, or he tried to ignore these sentiments, and he remained focused on expanding Mattachine through these new members, using the next town hall meeting, which some historians call the Homosexual Liberation Meeting. So this meeting took place on July 9th, and it boasted an attendance of 125 people and two police informers, just two. During the meeting, the founder of the MAC announced that gay people needed to show up in power to people solidarity at a forthcoming Black Panther demonstration. And Light had not been a fan of that. In his eyes, Mattachine had been founded to fight for the rights of homosexuals, and that was it. And while he was sympathetic to the struggles of other minorities, those struggles weren't the concern of the Mattachine. You can imagine how well that went over. In response, Martha Shelley raised her hand, stood up, and proposed a gay power rally in Washington Square Park to protest police treatment of homosexuals. It would be followed by a march to Sheridan Square Park, which was across from Stonewall. While Lice had called for dramatic action, he wasn't quite sure if a march and a rally were the right sort of action, and he had a lot of misgivings about the idea. Nonetheless, he asked for those in favor to raise their hands, and when Shelley looked around, every single person there was holding a hand up in the air. Leitch then suggested that those interested in organizing a march go into the back room to plan. They did so. All radical, all in their 20s, all singer-minded. Lillian Faderman writes that, They thought the homophiles were like the NAACP, and as gay radicals, they preferred to emulate the Black Panthers. To begin, they wanted to give themselves a title that would truly characterize them, something bold, something as politically confrontational as the National Liberation Front, a name that had been used by revolutionary, socialist, and communist movements all over the world since World War II. Someone in the crowd shouted out, Gay Liberation Front! And in her excitement, Shelley shouted back, That's it! And over and over, she banged her palm on the table. A fun fact is that, or I guess not quite fun, but an interesting fact, is that there was a bottle cap on the table, which Shelley repeatedly hit in her excited banging, and she was so excited that she didn't notice that it cut open her hand and that she started bleeding profusely. So yeah, that's how Gay Liberation Front was formed and got its name. And I don't want to go entirely into that first rally that the GLF hosted, since my focus is more on the group, but the rally was key in the formation of the group. About 2,000 people showed up to it in Washington Square Park, and Martha Shelley got to speak. Marty Robinson also spoke, and it was pretty successful. So, by the end of July 1969, the GLF had created its statement of purpose, defining itself as a revolutionary group of men and women that had formed with the realization that sexual liberation for all people cannot come unless existing societal institutions are abolished. Their way of abolishing these institutions was based on brotherhood, cooperation, human love, and uninhibited sexuality, and also through revolution. 
this statement was printed in a magazine called Rat in August of 1969. An interesting aspect about the GLF is that there were no official leaders, and so meetings often descended into chaos. To accommodate all of the different mentalities and points of views, the organization created cells. The cell structure was based on the communist model of doing tasks in small groups, and the idea was that the cells would tap the best of its members' energies and talents by being attentive to their needs, goals, and philosophies. The downside of this structure was that all of the cells fought each other pretty much all the time. One historian noted that, more traditionally anarchist than leftist, the lack of structure and the clash of ideas in GLF was perfectly indicative of the intellectual, social, sexual, and political excitement of the time. And another person remarked that the GLF was more of a process than an organization. Some numbers and bits about the GLF is that its organization hosted Sunday night meetings, had 19 cells, 12 consciousness-raising groups, an ongoing radical study group, an all-men's meeting, a women's caucus, three communal living groups, a series of successful community dances, and a newspaper called Come Out. That's a whole lot of a lot. Now that you know a bit about its formation and its structure, I want to get into what is, in my opinion, the best part to talk about. What they did. I feel like history is always boiled down to names and dates, and while this podcast does follow that formula a bit, it's the actions of each organization that are the most fascinating and sometimes the most important thing to talk about, because these actions, one, show what people involved were thinking and what they wanted to accomplish, and two, they show what actually changed. For anyone existing in 2019, clearly a lot has changed for the LGBTQ plus communities in Stonewall. And most of that is thanks to LGBTQ plus organizations in the 70s and 80s and 90s and even today. So let's jump into that. One of the first things the GLF did after the rally was show up in Kansas City at the annual North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, where one man, Stephen Donaldson, presented a manifesto called The Homophile Movement Must Be Radicalized to the 40 or so delegates of the NACHO. A lot of this manifesto boiled down to The homophile movement isn't accomplishing things, it needs to get with the times, it needs to be more radical, it needs to stand up for other minorities, etc. This wasn't received well, probably because the whole manifesto was super insulting to the homophile movement. And so the NACHO, oh my god, I just realized this smells nacho, y'all. So the nacho delegates refused to adopt the radical position. However, the next year, at the Nacho Convention in San Francisco, the radical gay groups kind of just decided it was time. So, on the third day of the convention, they marched into the session with banners that had messages about gay power and the like, and they took over. The first motion was for Nacho to declare its support for the Black Panther Party, and this motion passed. Unfortunately, the 1971 Nacho meeting was canceled, and by 1972, Nacho was disbanded. But the 1970 success helps demonstrate, one, the determination of the younger LGBTQ plus community, the methods, what their goals were, and honestly, it's just pretty indicative of cha- the changing of the guard sort of moment in history. And Nacho wasn't the only conference that the baby gays took by storm. In 1969, Jim Ferrat, a GLF member known for being a writer at Stonewall for his arrest in the 1965 anti-war protests in Times Square, his founding of the 1967 anti-war agitprop action Yippies, took the floor at the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations, where he laid into ERCO's chief leaders, calling them dinosaurs and lackeys of the establishment. 
While he was unsuccessful in getting Erko to urge all homosexuals to participate in anti-war protests, Erko saying that no one group can speak for all homosexuals, and that also Erko was, was made to deal with homosexual problems, not problems of the world. As you can see, this was a pretty common homophile belief. One radical resolution did get passed. This resolution had been drafted by Craig Rodwell, Fred Sargent, Linda Rhodes, and Ellen Broidy, who presented the resolution at Erco. The resolution called for an official end of the 4th of July annual reminder day demonstration in Philadelphia. Their argument was that, in Ellen's own words, reminder day has lost its effectiveness because it's become just one of many demonstrations at Independence Hall on that day. Instead, they proposed that on the last Saturday in June, there should be a Christopher Street Liberation Day demonstration nationwide to commemorate the Stonewall Riots. Those of you in the know know that this was the first Pride Parade, or well, Pride Parades eventually grew out of this event. Similarly to Nacho, Erko disbanded soon after, but that resolution did get passed. Something that was very important to the four authors of this resolution was that no dress or age resolutions shall be made for this demonstration. The stipulation was because of the dress codes at the annual reminder day, and I think because many young members of the LGBTQ plus community wanted to feel free to express themselves through dress however they pleased, and also didn't want younger members to feel excluded or feel unwelcome at the event. This is an interesting effect, because every year there are always debates about what is and isn't appropriate to wear at Pride. While I don't want to get into the discourse, I think recognizing both parts of the stipulation is important for our community today. Everyone should be free to dress how they please, but also everyone of all ages should feel welcome. How we find a compromise between those two key ideas is up to us as a community. On that note, let's keep trucking along. As one historian notes, the GLF fought a lot of serious and important battles across the country, and they had groups in every major city, but they didn't always fight these battles in a serious way. One man, John Singer, who changed his name to Fegele ben Miriam, Yiddish for little bird, but also for faggot, son of Miriam, was well known for agitprop scenes, first in San Francisco and then in Seattle. One event took place at Macy's, where the SFPD had been entrapping gay men in bathrooms, Fegele and other members of the GLF dressed up in women's hats and started at the top floor of Macy's and then made their way through the store trying to sell copies of a newspaper called Gay Sunshine. As they were kicked off of one floor, they'd head down to the next, and so forth. The purpose of this was to let the management of that Macy's know that the GLF was quite mad with the store letting the SFPD come in to arrest gay men. In Seattle, Fegele and the GLF there, angry that the police chief was sending pretty young cops to the parks to try and arrest any gay man who hit on them, staged a protest where they got into a stretch limo, filled it with GLFers in drag, took it to the police chief's house to have a party. They did this every weekend for two months, and they only stopped when the chief took a job in a different city. So, think about that. Someone's doing something you don't like. It's the police chief. And you know, as a queer community, historically, this is after Stonewall now. And now we're at the point where we're like, no, fuck this. We're not sitting down. We're annoyed. And so just the gall of the community back then and how brave they were to get a limo, dress up in drag, and throw a party in front of his house for months until he left. He, you literally ran him out of the city. 
That's so fucking cool, y'all. I don't know. One of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is because I think the things that were accomplished in the 1970s are pretty magnificent. And just the way that they were accomplished was pretty awesome. And as always, I'm just in awe of our community as it existed back then and the amount of bravery it took. Because Stonewall happened, but Stonewall is also probably really scary if you were involved in it. Like, you had been beaten down so much that your only response is to fight back. And then the form that fighting back took is just so creative and inspiring and is part of why I love history and why I love talking about what these groups accomplished and did because what they did and how they did it is quite cool. Moving on to a different thing, the most well-known agitprop event that the GLF put on is known as the Alpine County Prank. It's important to note, though, that the prank started out as a serious idea. Basically, a man named Don Jackson had read an article called Refugees from America, a Gay Manifesto, which inspired Jackson to envision a Stonewall Nation, basically a country created by and for the gays. He had a plan, too, which he presented at the GLF conference at Berkeley. Alpine County was nestled in the Sierra Nevada mountain range and only had 384 registered voters, and it was an idyllic nature location. There was a new California law that changed residency requirements for voters to 90 days, meaning that if 400 gays moved to Alpine County within three months, they could outvote all of its current residences and in turn create a gay haven. So this event as a prank was started, I think, mostly by Morris Knight, who had helped form the LA branch of the GLF and, while older, was very radical. Knight was frustrated with how the LA GLF was functioning because while they had been staging agitprop events on an almost daily basis, there was no media attention. He once said, you have to hit them over the head with a 2 by 4 before they'll pay attention to our issues. So Knight heard about Jackson's plan, and he told three of his most trusted friends, Alpine County is freezing, it's no place where anyone gay would want to live, but we'll pretend to be serious. And then he called up the press to tell them about the GLF's plans to take over the county. It's said that the media attention for this prank was more than the LGBTQ plus community had possibly ever received, after Knight announced to reporters and cameras that the GLF met and voted unanimously to take over Alpine, farms, ranches, craft shops, and there'll be a university where gay and lesbian studies will be taught, too. He had flyers talking about how Alpine County was going to be a new gay mecca and spoke about how it would become a citadel of intellectual and activist activity. Because of this, gay became a word that everyone knew. News was sent to Alpine, and all across the country, people, both straight or gay, were talking about this event. Unfortunately, some people, like Mr. Jackson, didn't realize that Knight had turned the event into a hoax, and they devoted themselves to this idea. When Knight thought the prank had gotten enough attention, he told the media that while they were still thinking of taking over Alpine, the LGBTQ community had moved on from it. I imagine those who were dedicated to it felt heartbroken and let down, and I have to admit, it's kind of sad that one man's dream got co-opted into a press event. While the unprecedented media coverage was historically groundbreaking, and while it made it possible for members of the LGBTQ plus community in small towns all over the country to feel heard and recognized, it kind of sucks that Jackson's dream was basically ruined for the movement. The other big GLF event, which I've talked about already in this episode and in the last one, but wanted to give just one more shout out to, was the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade. 
None of the organizers knew how much of an impact this event would have at the time, but on June 28, 1970, it said that thousands and thousands of LGBTQ plus individuals showed up to march. One historian wrote that never in history had so many gay and lesbian people come together in one place and for a common endeavor. In conjunction with the New York event, there was a Christopher Street West parade in LA that took place. And again, these parades are happening on a global scale every year. That's how far it stretched. An event in commemoration of Stonewall is still being felt and still being very well attended in 2019. That's really fucking cool, y'all. So, while the GLF accomplished a lot for the community, it fell apart in 1972. This was partially because of a split between members over whether the GLF should dedicate its time and funds to other minority activist groups or maintain it all for the LGBTQ community. It was also difficult because the GLF's open-ended process, as well as its refusal to see anti-gay bias or hatred as disconnected from other forms of oppression, neither resulted in hoped-for coalitions nor appealed to all members. Women's liberation, black power, anti-war, and labor groups were unwilling to work with GLF because of their own dislike or fear of homosexuality. Also important to note is that a lot of lesbians felt excluded from the GLF and felt that the issues they faced in society weren't being addressed. More on that later, though. On top of these splits, there was also contention between cells that made productive work difficult and one historian remarked that there is contention between affiliated GLF groups, too. Star, the street transvestite action revolutionaries, apparently couldn't stand to be in the same room as the radical lesbians. This contention centered around Star's encouraging gender-questioning and gender-experimenting street kids to be as girly as they wanted, whereas the radical lesbians said that the girliness mocked women because they flaunted the worst stereotypes of femininity. There's a lot to unpack in that. And while I don't want to push contemporary terms and points of views onto historical groups, I will say that it sounds like the radical lesbian point of view here does resemble some problematic contemporary issues that our community is still divided by. It does highlight the fact that there are some issues that we just keep dealing with. And so, in 1972, the GLF fell apart. But have no fear, there were other organizations forming or already formed, that we now get to talk about. The next one being the Gay Activist Alliance. In the arguments of the GLF about where to give funds, with some wanting to give their raised funds to the Black Panther or to the Young Lords, which was a Puerto Rican nationalist group, when members were jailed after protest, some members felt very strongly about using the money for LGBTQ plus causes, such as opening a gay community center. These members felt that it was working against the cause to donate their GLF funds to groups that were anti-homosexual. One such member was the New York GLF treasurer, Jim Owls. Owls was liberal, but didn't consider himself a radical leftist. A member of the Air Force, he'd been court-martialed for handing out anti-war leaflets, and then, when transferred to a base in Montana and assigned to the typing pool as punishment, he typed letters to a newspaper protesting Vietnam, which got him a dishonorable discharge. The story of his dishonorable discharge was one that made quite a few GLFers look at him in high favor. Other GLF members who weren't a fan of putting gay pennies and power into non-gay organizations were author Arthur Evans and Marnie Robinson, who helped found the GAA with Jim Owls. And they were joined by Kay Tobin, Vito Russo, and Marnie Manford, whose fun fact, his parents were the founders of PFLAG. 
In November 1969, Jim Owls arrived at Arthur Evans's apartment, furious at the GLF, with the idea to start a gay organization that would be an alternative to the GLF, with a focus only on gay and lesbian problems. Marty Robinson and Arthur Bell were already in. A couple of weeks later, a group met at Owls' apartment to form this new organization, which would focus on gay rights over gay liberation. They named it the Gay Activist Alliance. The GAA Constitution read that homosexuals have the right to make love with anyone, any way, any time, provided only that such action be freely chosen by the individuals concerned. Homosexuals have the right to treat and express our bodies as we will and to display and embellish them solely in the manner we ourselves determine, independent of any external control whatsoever. The GAA is also known for its symbol, the Greek letter lambda. They chose it because the Lacedaemonians Demonians or Spartans, bored on their shields, a people's will aimed at common oppressors. Fun fact is that the New York chapter first held their meetings at the Church of Holy Apostles, which was a progressive Episcopal um, church with a history of civil rights activity. And then they bought a firehouse, which they called the Firehouse, and made that their headquarters later on. Unlike the GLF, which was basically a free-for-all at its meetings, the GAA conducted its meetings according to Robert's Rules of Order. Their goal was to use confrontation politics to win civil rights, i.e. sit-ins, demonstrations, and street theater, but they wanted to be organized. So, on that note, back we are to talk about some specific examples of their demonstrations. In January 1970, members of the GAA drafted a petition to Councilwoman Carol Greitzer asking her to sponsor a bill that would add in the phrase sexual orientation to a city ordinance that prohibited discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations on the basis of race, religion, and gender. For three months, GAA members stood all over the city collecting signatures of gay and straight people alike. Jim Owls took those papers to her city hall in April of 1970 and said, Councilwoman Greitzer, I have here between six and 7,000 signatures of New Yorkers who are asking you to sponsor a gay rights bill. Unfortunately, Greitzer refused to accept them, making the excuse that she had too many things to carry and couldn't take them home with her. When Owls offered to carry them for her, she still refused and eventually said that she wouldn't sponsor a gay rights bill. A few days later, three dozen members of the LGBTQ plus community marched into a meeting of the Village Independent Democratic Club and shouted, Carol Greitzer is anti-gay. If you're not, make a statement supporting the gay cause. If you don't, we're staging a sit-in. They'd chosen this location because the members of this club were Greitzer's base. Greitzer, who was present, didn't want to make a statement and told the platform chair to tell the protesters that she had a cold. The crowd then chanted that she was guilty of the crime of silence until she finally spoke up. Greitzer said that the attorney general was the one who's done most of the work for civil rights and that she couldn't get it done. There was no way to get it done. The crowd was not happy with that and again chanted that she was guilty of the crime of silence. Afraid of looking bad and not knowing what else to do, Greitzer eventually gave in and accepted the petitions and said she would sponsor the bill. While Greitzer eventually went back on her word, the GAA had managed to get four other council members to co-sponsor the bill. It was voted upon in January of 1972, and unfortunately it, pale, it failed to pass due to heavy anti-campaigns run by the police and firemen's unions. So, the GAA focused a lot on ZAPs, which were pretty raucous public demonstrations that were meant to embarrass public figures or call the attention of both gay and straight communities to the issues affecting the community. 
I'm going to list a few of the other major zaps that I find quite interesting, but please go look up some of the others, because they're all worth knowing about. First up, I want to talk about the zap against Mayor John Lindsay. When the GAA had been collecting signatures for their petition, they'd made constant calls to Mayor John Lindsay. Unfortunately, when asked to make a statement supporting gay rights, he refused to respond. He soon became the GAA's primary target. One of their first zaps involved six GAA members posing as journalism students led by their professor, Ron Gold, going to the second floor of City Hall, where the mayor's office was. Once in front of his office, they pulled out handcuffs and chained themselves to the gate that blocked his office from public access. Their chants were heard by everyone in the building until the police were finally able to detach the group and escort them down to the police station. On April 13, 1970, the Metropolitan Museum of Art was hosting its 100th birthday party. Earlier, it had been reported that Lindsay would shake the hands of the first 100 people in line, and so GAA members rushed to fill said line. As he shook their hands, each member would say, Mr. Lindsay, you have our flyer. Now when are you going to speak out on gay rights? And refused to let go of his hand until the mayor's bodyguards forced each activist out. This happened with every single activist in line, and it caught the attention of the museum supporters there for the event. Another zap took place when Lindsay and his wife went to go see 2 by 2 at the Imperial Theater. Approximately 25 GAA members waylaid the pair in the lobby, asking, Mr. Mayor, when are you going to speak out on gay rights? While the mayor responded by trying to ignore them, his wife got quite flustered, and it's said that she punched and kicked various zappers while screaming at them until her husband, quite embarrassed, could restrain her. And so everything, I think, kind of comes to a end with Lindsay in 1971. So in 1971, John Lindsay declared himself as a candidate for the U.S. presidency, and while he had been a liberal Republican, he changed his affiliation to Democrat, feeling that it better suited his beliefs. And by that, I mean it better suited his chances of getting elected, because he was too liberal for the Republicans, and by calling himself a Republican, no Democrat was going to vote for him. So he thought changing his party affiliation to Democrat would give him a leg up. This brings us to our next zap. Lindsay was set to begin his campaign fundraising with a party at New York City's Radio City Music Hall. Led by Alan Roscoff, a group of GAA members bought tickets to the movie showing at the hall the day before this event. Their intention was to scope out the place. While none of them could afford the $100 ticket, Ron Gold, formerly known as for his role in the Zap at Lindsay's office, knew the head of the projectionist union who gave him a complimentary stack of tickets. We don't think that the head of the projectionist union had any idea what this was for because Gold had formerly been a reporter. So they did this not knowing it was for a protest, but still good on them for giving them the tickets, I guess. So the group dressed up to the nines and they waited until Lindsay took the stage. Morty Manford was stationed in the balcony where he had affixed a sturdy rope, and as soon as Lindsay opened his mouth to speak, Manford swung on it down to the orchestra screaming, Justice for Homosexuals. Cora Parada stood up from her seat, yelled out, Why are you contributing to homosexual oppression, Mr. Mayor, before pulling the pin on a siren that made an ear-splitting screech and then throwing the pin and the siren in different directions. After that, she sat back down, handcuffed herself to the seat. Next, Roscoff stood up, shouted, There are 20 million gays in this country. Lindsay cannot run for president, before pulling the pin on his own siren and throwing it, as well as hundreds of GAA flyers into the audience. He also handcuffed himself to his chair. 
After him was Wayne Sunday, then Rich Wandell, and others, all doing the same action. Lindsay fled the stage, and the event was cut short. Of course, the police came and detached the protesters from their seats and took them downtown, but the GAA had had succeeded. The next day, John Lindsay signed an executive order that said the sexual orientation of city employees and job applicants for city jobs must be considered irrelevant. So, like, here's my thing on this. Not only did they infiltrate his campaign event, not only did they stop him from ever being able to say a word, not only did they end the event early, they succeeded, and he made an executive order that New York City, it's like city employees and job applicants, couldn't be discriminated against for their sexuality. That's fucking amazing. Never mind the fact that someone fucking tied a rope to himself and flung himself off a balcony. Like, I don't know. I just, again, the level of creativity and the level of sheer I don't give a fuck what you say, I'm not going away until you fix this, of these protests is amazing to me. I, as a 24-year-old, would not think to get a bunch of sirens, handcuff myself to a seat after pulling the pin and making it so that the siren was never going to stop until it ran out of juice, and throwing them in different directions (laughs) so that, like, no one can hear anything. One is loud enough. They did it with, like, multiple. I don't know, y'all. I just... It's pretty damn cool. The things they did. Pretty damn cool. And that's not even the half of it. The GA is amazing and does some pretty cool protests. And let's talk about another one while we're on the roll. Um, Another one I want to talk about is their zap of the Marriage License Bureau, where the GAA demanded marriage rights for gays. When the New York City clerk refused to issue wedding licenses to homosexuals, the GAA invaded his office, bringing with them a huge pot of coffee, a wedding cake with two grooms and two brides on top, and the message, Gay Power to Gay Love, written on its side. Life magazine wrote about this zap on pages 62 to 73 in its A Year in Pictures, December 31st, 1971 issue, and said that homosexuals were America's newest militants, and dubbed the New York chapter of the GAA Homosexual Liberation's Most Effective Organization. If anyone is interested in taking a look at those pages of the Life magazine, I'll post a link to some not-great-quality images of it that I found. Just to ground us a bit, remember that the first U.S. state to legalize same-sex marriage didn't do so until 2004. Shout-out to Massachusetts! And the Supreme Court ruling on Obergefell versus Hodges that required all 50 states to perform and recognize same-sex marriages didn't happen until June 26, 2015. These folks were out here in 1971 protesting for same-sex marriage, y'all. 1971. And they did it with a gigantic-ass wedding cake, and I love that. The next zap I want to chat about was the zap against Fidelifax, which provided anti-gay information to employers. When the GAA got wind that a company called Fidelifax was reporting on whether or not an applicant was homosexual when hired to do background checks, the GAA worked with the Daughters of Bilitis to tie up the company's phone lines and also to march on their offices. Fifteen GAA and DOB leaders went to their offices and invited the press and WOR-TV to watch their sit-in. The cameras then caught the altercation between Jim Owls and two Fidelifax employees, where the employees told Owls that the group was trespassing, and Owls said, in turn, Fidelifax is trespassing on the human rights of homosexuals and on the privacy of all Americans. And then an employee shoved Owls into the wall. 
This shove aired on television that night. And while that argument was happening upstairs, Marty Robinson and 80 other LGBTQ plus individuals picketed in front of the building. Robinson in particular was wearing a bright yellow duck suit, and the image of him looking, walking, and cracking like a duck as he handed out leaflets also aired on TV. And while I'm not quite sure that, like, everyday viewers enjoyed that as much as I think I would have, that's pretty damn fucking great. Imagine giving so many fucks that you dress up in a duck suit to protest someone. The GAA also zapped the New York Taxi Commission when it required gay drivers to be checked by a psychiatrist before hiring them. In fall of 1972, Jeffrey Swearingen applied for a driver's job with the Dover Cab Company. At the time, all cab companies were required to send their applicants to the New York Metropolitan Taxi Bureau to be tested for their suitability. When questioned, Swearingen admitted that his draft status was 4F because the military had found homosexual tendencies. Swearingen was told that the Bureau could not approve him for work unless he got a letter from a psychiatrist saying that his sexual orientation wouldn't interfere with his job. Alan Roscoff, Arthur Bell, and seven other GAA members went to Michael Lazar, the head of the Taxi and Limousine Commission's office, on Wall Street, carrying a couch onto the freight elevator. They got out with the couch on Lazar's floor. What's fun here is that Alan Roscoff had dressed in a white doctor's coat and had a stethoscope around his neck, and he declared, We are here to psychoanalyze Mr. Lazar. We must see if he is sane enough to be the taxi commissioner. Not three days later, Lazar announced that the commission had reversed its policy on homosexuality. These are just a few of the major zaps by the GAA, so that you can get a feel of the kind of protests and the success that the GAA had. One article wrote that Zaps quickly transformed from a startling affront on civility to a necessary part of the liberation movement. As GAA activist Arthur Evans explained, at first the greater LGBT community was disturbed at the demonstrations for rocking the boat, but eventually this turned into anger and a sense of class consciousness. The actions functioned as a form of personal catharsis, fostering collective identity and making people feel safer coming out. According to Life magazine, participants felt that one good zap is worth months on a psychiatrist's couch. But perhaps more significantly, this type of protest was politically effective. Sarah Warner argues, simply threatening to zap a person of authority often resulted in victory. So that's kind of what the GAA is most known for. These zaps that, one, were very highly effective and almost always created some amazing change in New York or put the thought of homosexuality in the minds of people all over the country. But also, it just was a way to unify the community. And I think that's cool. Unfortunately, the GAA did not last and schisms started to form. Jean O'Leary felt that the male voices were too dominant in the organization, and she and many other women left to form the Lesbian Feminist Liberation Group, which focused specifically on lesbian rights. Bruce Voller, the GAA president at the time, was facing a faction of the GAA who felt that he was out of touch with the community and also opposed his efforts of reducing street activism in favor of joining the mainstream political fight. In October of 1973, Voller left to start the National Gay Task Force, and some members left with him. On top of this, transgender activists Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson left the GLF to help form GAA, but ultimately found themselves and issues of gender identity excluded. 
1970, they started Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, STAR, which became the foundational group for contemporary transgender activism. All this to say, there is a lot of division within the GAA. Unfortunately, in a time of strife, in 1974, the GAA's headquarters, the firehouse, was a target of arson. Both past members and homophobes were investigated as possible subjects, but the crime was never solved. While the GAA attempted to move forward and continued with zaps and pickets, historian David Eisenbach noted that when the GAA finally folded in 1981, it had reverted to GLF's inclusive political analysis. Since I just mentioned STAR, it feels like a good time to go into more detail there. STAR, as I said before, stood for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and it was founded in 1970 by Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, both trans women. STAR was an activist organization that attempted to provide housing and support to homeless queer youth and sex workers in Lower Manhattan. The organization came about after a sit-in at Weinstein Hall with the GLF and the radical lesbians at NYU in 1970, when the NYU's administration had canceled planned dances because a gay organization was sponsoring the event. Rivera said, Marsha and I just decided it was time to help each other out and help out other kids. At first, providing housing looked a lot like Johnson and Rivera sneaking people up into their hotel rooms, and later it was a parked trailer truck in Greenwich Village. The need for a permanent home came about after, one day, Rivera and Johnson returned with food for the group to see the trailer truck pulling away while 20-something people were still sleeping. Most of them were able to get out in time, fortunately, but one person reminisced that she woke up not where she had expected to be. Their new home was a four-bedroom apartment at 213 2nd Avenue, and together the group figured out how to fix the electricity, the plumbing, and all of the utilities. Rivera spoke on it saying, We fed people and clothed people. We kept the building going. We went out and hustled the streets. We paid the rent. We didn't want the kids out in the streets hustling. They would go out and rip off food. There was always food in the house and everyone had fun. Later, we had, a, we had a chapter in New York, one in Chicago, one in California, and England. It lasted for two or three years. Unfortunately, the Star House was only active until July 1971. Towards the end of its life as an organization, Star shifted its focus in the hopes of getting trans folks recognized within the gay liberation movement and within society. Unfortunately, Star stopped holding meetings in 1972, and Rivera said that the organization died at the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade. Believing that gender nonconforming individuals, the Star contingent and drag queens in particular, were intentionally being asked to stay at the back of the march and offstage, Rivera and fellow queen Lee Brewster stormed the stage during Gina O'Leary's speech. They jumped on stage and Rivera shouted, You go to bars because of what drag queens did for you, and these bitches tell us to quit being ourselves. When O'Leary resumed speaking, she criticized drag as misogynist and demeaning. Rivera herself said that we died in 1973, the fourth anniversary of Stonewall. That's when we were told we were a threat and an embarrassment to women because lesbians felt offended by our attire, us wearing makeup. It came down to a brutal battle on the stage that year at Washington Square Park between me and people I considered to be my comrades and friends. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were constantly fighting with the mainstream LGBTQ plus community to be included and to be recognized. As I said before, both of these women will be getting spotlight episodes in the future. So it feels out of place to discuss the LGBTQ plus movements and 
organizations and not discuss the Lavender Menace, which was an organization formed both out of rejection from the gay liberation movement and also rejection from the National Organization for Women, which was a second wave feminist organization that still exists today. Carla J., one of the founding members of the Lavender Menace, which would go on to hijack the Second Congress to Unite Women in May of 1970, wrote in her memoir that a number of men were more oppressive to women than any heterosexual guy I had known. Because of the gay men's lack of understanding and lack of willingness to address the institutionalized sexism that was inherent in society and in their organizations, numerous lesbians split from the GLF. Following the split away from gay men, and also preceding it in some cases, lesbian women tried to get involved in the feminist organization of the second wave. Lesbian women were met with contempt and exclusion. Betty Friedan wrote in her autobiography, Life So Far, that now didn't want to exclude anyone, but they wanted the movement to speak to and from the mainstream. The leaders of now were wary of appearing too radical and of losing the support of some of the facets of the government. However, due to social prejudice and the laws throughout the 20th century, lesbianism was not mainstream, as we know. In fact, lesbianism as a concept directly conflicted with the mainstream ideals and made numerous feminist leaders uncomfortable at best. Notably, the whole idea of homosexuality made Betty Friedan profoundly uneasy, in part because open discussion of sexuality unnerved her. The unease, as well as the fear of isolating necessary support, led now to systematically remove lesbians from officer positions, as well as deny them membership. When Friedan attempted to organize a Congress to Unite Women in 1969, there was an apparent coordinated effort by radicals to take over and divide the meeting, which led Friedan to fear infiltration and sabotage. When lesbians began disrupting Friedan's lectures and applying pressure on her to speak on lesbian issues, Friedan became only sure. The exclusion of lesbians was notable when now omitted the Daughters of Bilitis from their list of sponsors for the first Congress to Unite Women in 1969. Following this omission, Rita Mae Brown, one of the most vocal proponents for lesbian inclusion in NOW, was relieved of her duties as the editor of New York NOW's newsletter. By 1970, Friedan had spearheaded a successful effort to prevent lesbians from being elected or re-elected to office in the New York NOW elections. The exclusion of lesbians from now was felt on both a national and a state level. The result of that exclusion would eventually culminate in the Lavender Menace's zap of the Second Congress to Unite Women. Galvanized by the events and lack and actions against them, a group of lesbians formed the Lavender Menace, later called the Radical Lesbians. Their organization was inspired by Betty Friedan, who had called lesbianism a lavender menace in an interview, and by Susan Brown Miller, who had in turn said that lesbians were a lavender herring, perhaps, but surely no clear and present danger. For Brown Miller and Friedan, their concern was that lesbianism made it easier for men to dismiss the movement. The women involved in the lavender menace, however, felt a pressing need for the women's movement to recognize lesbian oppression, and so they planned to hijack the now-sponsored Second Congress to Unite Women, which took place in May 1970. During the opening ceremonies of the event, a member of the Lavender Menace slash Radical Lesbians turned off the lights and the microphone, and in the dark, numerous lesbians wearing lavender shirts and armbands flooded the auditorium. When the lights came back on, the group presented its manifesto-turned-pamphlet, The Woman-Identified Woman. The pamphlet was written by the radical lesbians in the months leading up to the takeover of the Second Congress to Unite Women as a collaborative effort amongst lesbian feminists. During the event, the Lavender Menace succeeded in bringing many audience members over to its cause, in no small part thanks to the woman-identified woman. At four pages in length, the manifesto opens with, What is a lesbian? A lesbian is the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion. 
and contained descriptions of the mistreatment of lesbians at the hands of now, as well as the argument that lesbian membership was necessary for the progression of feminism. It's an interesting read, and I recommend anyone who's curious about it to check it out. So as I said before, the Lavender Menace pretty soon became the Lavender Liberation and then settled on the name Radical Lesbians. The group was committed to being non-hierarchical in structure and making decisions by consensus. Inevitably, however, certain people took on de facto, if unacknowledged, leadership roles, causing resentments that prompted others to leave. In addition, the requirement of consensus on radical lesbians' decisions proved to be an impediment, as achieving unanimous opinions was often difficult. The group also believed in absolute female separatism and didn't associate with men or women who didn't cut ties to the heterosexual mainstream society. Because of its harsh stance on that, some members split off and returned to the GLF, and others moved on to form other organizations, including the Furies. This organization was short-lived, but is well-known because of their actions with the Second Congress Tonight Women. The last organization I want to talk about today is the National Gay Task Force, which was founded in 1973. So Bruce Voller, he was in the GAA and was in fact its president in 1973. But in that year, he accused the GAA of having the same chaos, obstructionism, and silly downward mobility that the GAA founders had leveled against the GLF three years earlier. He wanted the GAA to have a board of directors, and he wanted the GAA to move towards mainstream political change. Unfortunately, the disagreements were insurmountable, and he left and formed the National Gay Task Force with Howard Brown, Martin Duberman, Barbara Gettings, Ron Gold, who would be the NGTF's first communications director, Frank Kameni, Robert L. Livingston, Tom Ellis, and Natalie Rockhill, former VP of GAA and NGTF's national coordinator, according to the task force's current website. As I've said before, the NGTF became known as the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, and that happened in 1985, and then it changed its name to the National LGBTQ Task Force in 2014. However, our focus today will be on its first iteration for the most part, since this episode's focus is on the 1970s. Voller's hope for the NGTF was that it would be the coordinator of all 850 organizations in the country, and I think that number might have been an exaggeration, but I don't know for sure. The hope of Voller and those who founded NGTF with him was that the organization be run by professionals who could structure it like a company and hopefully be more successful appealing to the mainstream. Lillian Faderman wrote that it would represent a new concept in gay organizations, off the street and into the boardrooms, and courthouses and Congress, too. This idea appealed to Frank Kameni and Barbara Gettings a lot, since this was what they had hoped the homophile movement would do. One of the major points I have to give this organization was that even at its founding, it wanted to unite LGBTQ plus individuals from all over the U.S., not just in big cities, but in small towns in the Midwest everywhere. And one thing that the NGTF focused on in the 1970s was trying to get a gay ordinance passed in New York. Bella Abzug, a New York City politician and resident of Greenwich Village who'd been elected to the U.S. House of Representatives with the help of, at the time, closeted New York Congressman Ed Koch, put forward the Equality Act of 1974. It was hoped to be a federal bill that would ban discrimination on the basis of homosexuality, and I think their specific phrase was on the basis of sexual or affectional preferences. While the bill unfortunately never got past committee, the NGTF incurred Abzug and Koch to try again in 1975, and this time 22 other Congress members co-sponsored the Civil Rights Amendment of 1975. 
Fuller organized a press conference about it on Capitol Hill and invited organizations such as the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Organization for Women, both of which had become supporters of LGBTQ plus rights by then. At the press conference, Abzug discussed that the bill would protect the LGBTQ plus community, who made up of 10% of Americans, she said, in housing, jobs, federally assisted programming, education, and would also stipulate punishments for hate crimes against LGBTQ plus individuals. Unfortunately, the bill didn't pass, although it seems that no one expected it to. The accomplishment of this bill was that for the first time, 24 congressmen and congresswomen had openly sponsored a bill for gay rights. No matter where you were in the U.S., that fact conveyed that the LGBTQ community was making notable progress in their fight to be accepted. One thing to note is that the task force still exists. One of its early members, John D'Amelio, wrote its, on its impact that, the task force played a critical role in the campaign to eliminate the sickness classification of homosexuality. It worked to lift the prohibition on federal civil service employment for gays and lesbians. It strove in the 1970s to make the Democratic Party responsive to the gay community. It took the lead in the 1980s in the national organizing against homophobic violence. As AIDS began to devastate gay male communities, the task force shaped the first serious efforts in Washington to address the epidemic. It was a founding member of the Military Freedom Project, which prepared the ground for the gays in the military debate of 1993. It has worked with the administrations of presidents from Carter to Clinton. The task force, now called the National LGBTQ Task Force, is still around today, and according to their website, they are working to build a future where everyone can be free to be their entire selves in every aspect of their lives, as well as training and mobilizing millions of activists across the nation. So those were just five LGBTQ plus organizations that formed and worked in the early 1970s. There were so many more that did a lot of great work for our community, so many that were also at odds with each other. All of these organizations formed because of Stonewall, because of the mindset of what could be accomplished changed. I think what I want my listeners to take away from this episode is that our community has always been resilient. Our community has always fought tooth and nail, sometimes in really funny and inspiring ways, for itself. Sometimes our community made mistakes, and still might, but when a group of people rallies together to create change, change will eventually happen. This is a part of our history that, is, that not a lot of people know about. Sure, they know about pride parades, but these other effects from Stonewall are just as important and just as worth knowing. I hope learning about these groups has inspired you a little bit today. Before I say goodbye... I wanted to take the opportunity to plug a podcast on my network. So yeah, check out Summer Twilight Book Club, where they read and analyze the Twilight Saga. I, like so many others, definitely went through a Twilight phase. I distinctly remember my librarian in sixth grade calling me over one day and saying something about how a new book just came out in a series about vampires and how she was so sure I'd love it. That book was New Moon. And I was pretty much obsessed with the series until I got to high school, and now a bad fact about me is that I rewatch the Twilight movies at least once a year each summer when I'm bored. So anyway, if you're like me and want to hear actual adults with actual degrees discuss the books, check out Summer Twilight Book Club. Hello, you beautiful blood-sucking babes. I'm Sahana. And I'm Kat. And we're the hosts of Summer Twilight Book Club, a podcast where your two best friends put their social work degrees to good use by rereading the four horniest books of their teenage years. If you're at all curious about any of the following, this is the podcast for you. Does Bella Swan have a car crash fetish? Yes, I am telling you right now the answer is yes. Does Stephanie Meyer understand healthy relationship boundaries? 
Has Bella Swan ever had a secure attachment in her life? How has Twilight impacted the societal and my personal conceptions of romance? Why does Stephanie Meyer Osahana and all their brown people reparations? Why is Edward Cullen so into edging? You can find Summer Twilight Book Club at theorangegirls.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you access podcasts to find out. So that's it for today. Thank you for your time. I hope you learned something interesting today, or at least got inspired to learn more. Next episode, I'll probably be looking at the late 1970s and the early 1880s, which will deal with renewed religious persecution, the HIV outbreak, and more. If you want to learn more, check out our website for this episode's sources and some recommendations on further reading you can do. If you have any questions, feel free to chat with me on Twitter at TimeLGB or on my personal at FairyPrinceTheo. Until then, this was LGB Time Machine with Theo. Thank you to the Orange Groves for hosting us. Thank you to you for listening. Love and light to you all. I'll speak to you next time.